I'm Matthew Frost, and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. Now, before we jump into today's podcast, I'd just like to cast your minds back. Can you remember all the way back to January 2020? Well, that's when we released our very first episode of the podcast. So this podcast comes just one year after. And, uh, well, what a year it's been. I don't think any of us could have quite predicted how that year was going to turn out. Yet, despite all the changes and everything we've seen in the world, we've still managed to produce 13 podcasts with different guests and pieces we've analysed. I'd just like to take this moment once again to thank all of those guests that have joined us so far. It's been fantastic speaking to old acquaintances about Salvation Army brass band music, but also those that I've never had the privilege of meeting in person, only having met them over Zoom and them still to agree to join us on Fully Scored. Thank you to everybody. Now, looking forward to 2021, do not fear, we still have an exciting year's worth of podcasts planned out for you, with different guests and pieces we're going to be analysing. We also have a new segment, but I'll explain a bit more about that at the end. Anyway, on to today's episode, episode 14, The Big One Four. If I asked you to think about a devotional piece that's had a big impact in your life and your faith, I'd imagine that lots of you might think of Wilfred Heaton's piece, Just As I Am. And we're going to be doing an analysis of that later with renowned authority on Heaton's music, Paul Heinmarsh. But before we get to that, I'd like to welcome onto the podcast Dr. Howard Evans. Now, this interview was recorded all the way back in February 2020, before there were any COVID restrictions in place. So it was very kind of Howard to welcome us into his home to talk with him. It was really enjoyable chatting to him about his life, the things he's achieved, and about Salvation Army music in general. One of my favourite things that I remember, though, from that recording was the cup of biscuit-flavoured tea that Howard made for us. It was absolutely delicious. Thank you again, Howard, for that cuppa. Anyway, that's enough of me rambling. Let's jump in our metaphorical time machine, head back to February 2020, and enjoy this chat with Dr Howard Evans. On today's episode, I'd like to welcome one of the finest musicians the Salvation Army has to offer, and an all-round Christian example of a man, and that is our second doctor we've had on the podcast, Dr Howard Evans. Howard, it's a real pleasure to welcome you onto Fully Scored. So first of all, I'd like to get a little bit of background to your life. Um, you, I believe you were born in South Wales, in Abergavenny. Absolutely. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your earliest memories of the Salvation Army? Uh, my earliest memories of the Salvation Army indeed were at Abergavenny, where it was a very, very small hall. The building still exists. It's now a Christadelphian place. The army did eventually move to a larger hall in Abergavenny. It was a very small hall. I remember crying my heart out in the Salvation Army Hall at the age of seven years of age when we moved to Leon C. My parents decided to move. Um, we moved uh, next door to my maternal uh, grandparents. Um, but um, sort of musically in those days, uh, my dad was always a very good musician, didn't have the opportunity necessarily for music training that I, I had in his early life, but was part of the Abergavenny band of eight or nine players that played on the Albert Hall stage in 1958. Fantastic. At Bandmasters Councils, as it was in those days. Brilliant. 
And I believe at that time you uh, began to learn the piano, French horn and cello. Um, what inspired you to learn inspired instruments? Sometimes we do as we're told. <laughs> <laughs> when we moved to Leon C, I had the opportunity to do music. I loved playing the piano. I started off playing the tenor horn in the YP band. My uncle was the YP band leader, actually gave, my, gave me my first lessons on a brass instrument, uh, my uncle David, David Martin. I learned the piano. I learned the French horn as a follow-up to that and took up the French horn because in those days, as an instrumentalist, if you were going thinking of going off to university, they'd have laughed at you if you turned up for your music audition with a tenor horn. In fact, most universities wouldn't have known what a tenor horn probably was in those days. And this is not that long ago. It's not in the days of the Ark. Things have changed <laughs> very, very quickly. Um, again, because my parents wanted me to have an all-round music education and because of the benefits of music education in those days, I was just so lucky. I went to a Saturday morning music school where I started the horn and learned the cello. I got a grade six on the cello, but gave it up at 16, but ended up taking up the horn a little bit more seriously. And my dad um, uh, took me every so often to one of the horn tutors at Trinity College of Music, uh, John Burden. And I spent hours buzzing through my tenor horn and doing flexibility exercises like that. Uh, piano was always my first love. Mm. And uh, I had a very fine piano teacher. And uh, you later continued your studies of piano, doing music degree at Manchester University. And then following that, a postgraduate degree at the Royal College of Northern Music. Um, <laughs> Royal, Royal Northern College of Music. I know you're from Birmingham, but I will let you off that. <laughs> um, was it always your aim to become a concert pianist? I, I pursued all my studies, uh, even right from the age of 14. I was... My family, we, we laugh, we smile about it. They think I, I had a slightly sort of deranged childhood in that, you know, by the age of 14, during the school holidays, I'd happily spend five or six hours practising the piano. I, 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 to become a musician was what I wanted to do and, and I pursued everything that I could to do that and doing postgraduate piano at the Royal Northern was partly the path to becoming a pianist. I actually got onto the Live Music Now scheme I've got old copies of programmes of recitals that I did. I went to a few places. Uh, went to uh, a few places on this scheme that gave young performers opportunities, and you started on what I would call the round of the sort of music club circuit. Um, the music live now, the Yehudi menu in music live now scheme gave you a chance to do that, and I've still got some of the programmes that I did in those early days, starting to do recitals. My piano teacher was a Russian lady who is still alive. She's in her 90th year. She's due to be 91 in May. I still keep in touch with her. Sulamita Aronofsky, incredible character, incredibly resilient character. Um, also studying with her at the Royal Northern at that time was Vovka Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jr., as we called him at that time. So there were a number of things that were sort of about to be on offer and things that I was supposed to do. And uh, that was the way things were going. But at the back of my mind, there was always a niggle as far as the Salvation Army was concerned. Fantastic. And I believe you also have an LTCL diploma in splitting notes. Oh, sorry, French horn as French well. French horn, <laughs> yes. But that's why I learned to... Because <laughs> you, if you could pitch the note like that, you didn't split it, Moly. <laughs> next, sure sure next time you're in my band, <laughs> this will come back to haunt you. Yes. <laughs> Um, and as you've just alluded to, um, God had other plans in your life. And instead of having a, 
what I'm sure had been a very, very fulfilling career in music. You went into training at the Salvation Army International Training College uh, to become a full-time Salvation Army officer or full-time minister. Um, was this an easy decision to make? When the time came, yes. I took a long time getting there. When the time came for me actually to make that decision, it was like a, yes, this is simply what I have to do. And it didn't feel as though I was giving anything up, but that was the direction life was supposed to take. It was partly due to an encounter with Norman and Jill Bearcroft at the Cobham uh, Music School, as it was in those days. And as a result of that, I should have actually been going back to Manchester to continue my studies. Uh, that wouldn't have helped me as far as the income front was concerned. And um, um, it was one of those things. I went up to see Norman, told him kind of where I was going and what I wanted to do. This was uh, late August. I was supposed to be going back to Manchester in the September I was in the middle of learning the Liszt Piano Concerto to do an audition for the Liverpool Phil. I was also in the middle of learning the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion because I was booked in October to do a concert with uh, young Ashkenazi. We were doing a joint concert at the Royal Northern. I went to see Norman. He took me down to see the candidate secretary. Um, he then took me to see the staff secretary. He was short-staffed and didn't have a national bandmaster at that time and was short-staffed in the bands department, as it was then. And um, two or three weeks later, I mean, you can't imagine this happening now, uh, two or three weeks later, I ended up starting with a job working with Norman in the bands department in September uh, 19, uh, 1981, and um, started to earn some money so that I could sort of progress and do my stuff, and there was no point in hanging around. Norman was actually very practical. If that's what was going to happen, Norman had a kind of sort of pragmatism to, if you like, to, to a lot of this stuff. And uh, it worked out great. I ended up working for 12 months and going into training in 1982. And you mentioned again the role of the National Bandmaster. Yeah. Um, you were later appointed to that role of National Bandmaster. Yep. Um, could you tell us a bit about that role as it doesn't exist now? I know I certainly no. didn't know much about it. Um, could you tell us a bit about what that role holds and the significance it had in your life? The National Bandmaster was always, if you like, the sort of assistant to the National Secretary of Bands and Songs of Brigades. And, um, I mean, I followed... I, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, it went back to people like Ted Saywell, Dean Goffin, followed by Norman, followed by Les Condon, followed by Trevor Davis... In those early years, the National Bandmaster Royal, you were part of the department, you were part of what went on, but the National Bandmaster's role was to go out and spend two weeks in a division doing band practices, actually doing a lot of donkey work, checking musical inventories, doing rehearsals with the band. Norman, when Norman was the National Bandmaster, Norman would spend two weeks away and one week home back in the office. By the time I became the National Bandmaster, it wasn't quite as intense as that. Things had moved on. Nevertheless, part of the role was actually getting out and doing as much as you could. I, I did a lot of weekend specialing, doing special events, doing rehearsals, going out, being invited out in those days, rather than saying, I want to come to your rehearsal. I was open. It was more a question of being open to invitations to bands and songsters. Um, fortunately in that way it wasn't confined just to bands um, and as a composer what are your inspirations when you write music sometimes the inspirations are to have something that serves a particular function a particular purpose 
Sometimes, like the piece that I wrote recently for Stephen Mead, was the tribute that Steve, I was asked, it was a commission, and Steve asked me to do that um, and dedicate it to his father. Um, some of the pieces that I have written have been part of a self-expression and what I wanted to do, and sometimes getting out what's actually going on. I mean, the piece that I particularly think of in that relevance, it's not terribly well known, um, uh, but it's the elegiac variations uh, piece that I wrote in the early 90s based on uh, a song that I originally had written, uh, the song When He Cometh for the Albert Hall. A lot of that, and particularly the stormy movement uh, of that particular work, is very much a self-expression of stuff that came from out of me. Even my mother said, oh, one, you know, can't imagine what's going on in your head. <laughs> but but some, of, some of that is, it's a, it's, it's a huge mixture in that kind of way as to what's actually going on. And I think that's probably true for all sorts of, especially Salvation Army composers. You know, sometimes we write because we've been asked to. Sometimes we write because there's a functional basis for what we're doing because it has a particular purpose for something. Other times we are writing for that self-expression. Fantastic. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? I think because I chose the Holy War for the analysis uh, that we did um, a little while back. Um, I, I think the person that I would turn to that gives me the most inspiration all the time has probably got to be RSA in terms of the breadth of what he writes, the scope of the styles with which he writes and uses, the, the I think I used these words before, the compositional integrity of what he writes and, and the emotional content that comes with that. And outside of the Salvation Army, have you got a favourite composer? That's an even more difficult one. It goes in fits and starts. Sometimes a certain composer will be a favourite and then I move on and I'm suddenly listening to somebody else's. Over the last few weeks, I've been listening for various reasons and I'm trying to think why. I'm not sure what started it off, but I've been listening to Edward Gregson. Hmm. And and again, I think it's because of the... This, uh, a, it's partly, I mean, uh, it's, it's partly his relationship to Salvation Army music and where he came from. But um, um, I've been listening to things like um, rediscovering Rococo variations and the symphony in two movements. And when you hear um, him talk to Paul Heinmarsh about those works and the symphony in two movements, I, I kind of sort of understand why I kind of enjoy and have gone back to those particular works and enjoy uh, listening to them. You've held appointments as the Territorial Music Secretary and Bandmaster of the Amsterdam Staff Band, and you've also been the Bandmaster at Boscombe Citadel Band. What do you see as the main differences between leading a staff band and a core band? Leading the core band, I took on Boscombe Band because I was the staff bandmaster, and Boscombe were in a situation where they didn't have a bandmaster, and as a staff bandmaster, I was aware that I was reliant on people to be functioning and to maintaining a sense of, uh, of, of the core band at a core level and its activity 
Otherwise, there was no rationale for the staff band to exist. So therefore, part of my rationale for taking on Boscombe Band was that it was up to me to do that and to do something with that and to apply the concepts of what I felt Salvation Army Banding ought to be at that level. Otherwise, there was no raison d'etre for me to be a staff band master. I think the rationale for the staff band or the Boscombe Band in terms of who they are, my rationale, my kind of theology of Salvation Army banding was exactly the same, whatever I was doing. Educationally, training, inspirationally, maybe there was a different role for the staff band in terms of the encouragement, the work that you do, how you role model things. But what I role modelled at Boscombe and within the Amsterdam staff band would have been what I wanted to role model anywhere with any Salvation Army band. And my final question before we move on to some Twitter questions that we've been sent in. Um, you're now an examiner for the ABRSM, the Associated Board of Royal Schools of Music, uh, who, for our international listeners, deliver music exams here in the UK, one of the many boards that are available. Um, have you got any advice for young people preparing to take exams and going through that process? Preparation is everything. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I mean, the board actually work extensively overseas. I've done three or four trips to China. I've been, I've spent a month in Oman. I've spent a month in Portugal. I've been to Poland. Uh, 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 I've been to Singapore. It's huge in Asia. Um, So I'm really fortunate. I've been doing it quite a number of years. Yeah, preparation and, and being prepared. And actually... Everything, when I first started doing uh, working as an examiner, it was soon after I, 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 I finished my officership and it was one of the opportunities that came to me to become an examiner in terms of getting out there and earning my living. Um, I would say that one of the things that's changed over the last 20 years is the accessibility to knowing what is part of the assessment process. Probably 20 years ago, the assessment process wasn't quite so transparent. These days... What we do, what we do in the exam room, how the exam is processed, the procedures of the exam, it's all out there. All of this stuff can be discovered so that actually when you go into that exam room, you can actually know, even if you don't quite experience it, you can know exactly what your choices are, what you're going to be asked to do, the language that is used, for instance, when it comes to the oral tests, the rubrics that we use for the oral tests these days are published Get your teacher to help you prepare for that exam. It's all out there and do your best and practice as much as possible. Thank you very much. So the next question has been sent in by Trevor Caffell, a long-term member of the International Staff Band and Managing Director of SACOL. The question is as follows. Hi Howard, a good head of hair is essential to creating the right look whilst conducting. I'm feeling a bit follically challenged these days, and it's obvious to us all that you're using hair product. Uh, I'd love to have a mop like yours, so can you tell us, please, what product you use? Trevor, jealousy will get you nowhere. (laughs) I do not use a single hair product apart from some kind of... I try not to put chemicals on my hair, but I do try and use an organic type of shampoo, but there are absolutely no hair products or synthetic extras that add to my mane in any shape or form. 
I completely deny all knowledge of any extraneous supports. On your bike, Trevor. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we've had a couple of Twitter questions sent in. We've had two questions sent in from Gary Rose, the Assumption Leader at Kettering Citadel. The first of the two questions is, how far should a conductor go to find the soul of the music, where the composer's own markings don't get to it in terms of dynamics within a phrase, rouse, rits, slantandos, etc.? Or should a conductor always try to follow the markings as much as possible? That's a really interesting question, and actually I'm afraid, Gary, there's no straightforward answer. Music scholarship and all of the background work that you kind of sort of do with this, and for instance at Masters study one of the uh, one of the assignments that I undertook was this question uh, there is so much written philosophically about it I think a composer's intentions in the sense that in the modern age composers actually know what they mean and do want and, and, and do express what they mean um, I think the composer's intentions are there how far we stretch the sense of our own interpretation I think within vocal music, there is far more in terms of the background to vocal music and how you inflect the phrase. Having said that, band-wise, I would often sort of want to do the same kind of thing. And music and music and notation, at the end of the day, is an imperfect language with which we, by which we convey our intentions. And that's why the music can't always necessarily tell us everything. I think it's a finely balanced act between judging between the two and maybe there are some times when it comes down on the side of being more expressive with your own sense of interpretation as opposed to what the, the composer has written. Uh, other times, I think there are times when you stick to what the composer actually says. Fantastic. And the second question is a slightly more personal question. Has being a cancer survivor changed the way that you feel or are affected by music? Being a cancer survivor doesn't... I don't think it's the change the way I'm affected by music. I think, per se, it's just completely changed all sorts of attitudes and all sorts of things in relation to life in general. And it's something that kind of lives with you all the time. Uh, I find myself far more emotionally vulnerable these days. Uh, for all sorts of reasons there are times when I can a piece of music will just I will just sit and cry uh, for all sorts of reasons um, I just find myself far more emotionally vulnerable because of everything that I've gone through to events in life to things that happen to other people um, it changes what you sometimes see as your priorities and some of the silly things that happen in life and some of the silly things that people say that you just end up actually just... That's not really part of the big question. So it, it has, it's possibly changed the way I react these days, but I don't think it's, it's, it's... It has changed who I am. So maybe in that way it has changed the way I react to music, but it's, it's a huge, big impact even these days. I'm just coming up to six years out of my kind of final treatment. But it still feels as though that could have been last year. Great. Thank you ever so much for your honesty there. Um, to finish the interview, I've got a series of quick-fire questions to you. These are a bit more quirky and looking at a few different aspects of your life. Yes, I've heard some of your quirky questions <laughs> before, Matthew. <laughs> so, starting off, 
Have you got a favourite Salvation Army band piece? Well, at the moment, it's The Holy War, because that's what I've been working on. Have you got a favourite songster song? A favourite songster piece at the moment that I would keep coming back to is George Marshall's In the Stillness. And it's partly because of my cancer journey that, and the importance of that song. I would still come back to it. Fantastic. Um, maybe an even trickier question now. Uh, what's your favourite part of a full English breakfast? Oh, I love it all. <laughs> the bacon and the sausages. Great. So not a vegan then. <laughs> um, what's your favourite Bible translation? The translation I keep coming back to most is the New International Version. Great. And That's you... the one I use, I, I use mostly. Great. Have you got a favourite Bible verse? My favourite Bible passage, the passage that I would go back to time and time again, is the first 14 verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There is so much to understand. There is so much mystery. There is so much about that passage that I just love, that it's a kind of constant that I would go back to time and time again. Have you got a favourite biblical character? Not really. In my, in my head, I wanted to give you a quirky answer for that and say Job. <laughs> I mean, who else, who, who else would have a favourite character as being Job? <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's quite correct, but it's really strange. When you ask the question, that's the first name that came into my head, so um, I've expressed it. <laughs> great. Um, at the 2019 Territorial Music School, Oh, now you're getting personal. Which was the best band? Was it the Gavin Lamplow band or the, uh, the Howard Evans band? Well, it had, uh, across the board, I mean, I'd, I'd, let, let's, let's be controversial here. I'd include a band as well and say it was the Howard Evans band. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We won every single concert, didn't we? <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, what's your favourite city worldwide? Vienna. I loved Vienna when we went to visit there a number of years ago and went to the Vienna State Opera. Fantastic. Have you got a favourite symphony? The symphony that I've heard recently that suddenly pops to mind if I was to have a say favourite symphony because of its, just just like you, Matthew, its quirkiness is Beethoven 7. Fantastic. And, and that's because of that huge quirky opening in terms of where, whereby he starts on that seventh chord mm. and just totally takes his listener by surprise with those opening modulations before he starts on the main theme. But even as a youngster, and this is where my life was quite quirky, let's go for Beethoven 7. As a youngster, 10 or 11 years old, I remember listening and being totally and utterly compelled and fascinated by the slow movement of Beethoven 7. I just loved it, even at that age. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Uh, Sahara or Antarctica? Sahara. Count Basie or Duke Ellington? Both. Okay. Tea or coffee? Coffee. I can't survive without my first coffee in the morning. It's a good job you guys came to see me in an afternoon. I'm much better in an afternoon than I am in the morning, especially if I've done a rehearsal the night before. Great. Um, what's the best sport, in your opinion? Rugby. As a Welshman, it's got to be rugby. And, and the very final question I've got is, um, what's the best animal noise or impression you can do? And could you demonstrate that, please? I don't do any more noises, but my favourite animal that I had as a child would have been a little rabbit. So they're very quiet creatures. So I should be very quiet. Silence, quiet. This is the rabbit. Dumb.
There we are. Absolutely average. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you so much, Howard, for your time. It's been brilliant to get to know you better and all the aspects of your life. Thank you. Very kind of you. I hope we've had a bit of fun as well. I hope we have too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks once again, Howard. Always great speaking with you. Now, in next month's episode, we're going to be speaking to Derek Lance, uh, bandmaster of the New York Staff Band. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask him, uh, please comment on the Music Editorial Facebook post, uh, tweet us at Fully Scored, or even send us a message on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, and anything that you have to ask Derek. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we're going to be doing an analysis of Heaton's Just As I Am. I was very pleased to have been joined by Paul Heinmarsh for this analysis. As you'll hear Paul speak about, he had many conversations with Heaton and developed a close friendship with him. Paul is a well-renowned journalist and author on all things brass band, particularly Heaton's music, and as well as writing Heaton's biography and completing and publishing many of Heaton's unfinished sketches, Paul is also the artistic director of the Royal Northern College of Music Brass Band Festival every year, and for many years was also a producer for BBC Radio 3, and encouraged the commissioning of many new pieces for brass band from some very notable composers. In September 2020, Paul was also the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award for his work with Brass Bands England. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Paul to talk about Wilfred Heaton's piece, Just As I Am. So, first of all, thank you ever so much for joining us and giving up your time to join us on the podcast today. For those of you that don't know you, perhaps you could start off just telling us how you first came across the music of Wilfred Heaton. Well, good, great to be here, actually, and I'm really enjoying um, enjoying the podcast and looking forward to talking about Wilfred Heaton's music. I first came across it in the Salvation Army because that's where I was brought up. Um, and I suppose I was in my early teens and I really took notice of, as everybody does, who I've spoken to, the March Praise. In my later teens, when I was beginning to study classical music, I thought how well this music related to what I was experiencing outside the Salvation Army. Pieces like Intercedo Lord for choir, which was extraordinarily adventurous, I thought, for Salvation Army music. Um, as I said, the March Praise, Toccata. I've never come across music like that within the Salvation Army, and it always intrigued me. And I promised myself then, in my late teens, early 20s, if I ever got the chance to uh, develop his music, to, to work on his music more, then I would. And that opportunity came, actually, when I was at the BBC, 30 years ago now nearly, and that we, when we met. And um, I started to, to try to get some of his larger pieces broadcast uh, and performed, because they hadn't been played, and some of them weren't even quite finished. Uh, so that was a great adventure. And I met him in the early 90s and then we kept in touch during his last decade uh, and I promised him actually I suppose it was our last one of our last phone calls and he passed away just a few weeks later and I said Wilf, Wilfred I never called him Wilf I've always Wilf, Wilfred you know I'm going to write your biography one day oh really do you have to <laughs> and, and I thought oh well I said yes I do and he said if you do remember one thing keep my life and my music separate uh, I didn't know what he meant at the time, because I always thought one's music came out of one's uh, being, as it were, one's personality at the time you wrote it. But of course, later on, I came to realise that all the music that we know in the Salvation Army from uh, Wilfred Heaton, most of that was written when he was very young. And 
some of it didn't appear in print until very much later. So pieces like Toccata, for example, he wrote that when he was about 18, 19, in its first version, and it wasn't published until the 70s. So the, the Salvation Army audience knew Just As I Am, which we're gonna talk about in a minute. Um, they knew Praise, they knew Martin, which it's beautiful arrangement, and uh, a little piece called Passing By, which has got passed by, it's not often played, uh, but it's, it's very touching. But for me, of all those pieces he wrote before he was 20, it's just as I am, I think that for me, that shows such maturity of expression, coherence. He sort of takes that little tune and owns it. Absolutely. And we'll look into a bit more detail of exactly how he owns it in a few minutes. Now, perhaps you've alluded to it in that sort of introduction there, but what is it specifically that makes the music of Heaton stand out to you? Well, it's the craftsmanship, first of all. Um, it's elegant, it's beautifully considered. He, 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 he cherished every note he wrote, every note he put down, even from his young, youngest um, days. I've got here on my computer uh, a cornet solo he must have written when he was 14 or so. Sounds like it ought to have been written 50 years earlier because it's one of those air very solos. Uh, but it's beautifully written. Even as a young man, he was considering every note. So it's the beauty of it. It's the range and craft. Um, and for me, it's the expression. Uh, so just to gauge some context around the writing of the piece, I believe that you spoke to Heaton about this piece and how it came about. It was in our very last phone call in March 2000. Uh, and he rang me to say he'd just put in the final touches to a very large piece called Variations. And then I asked him about his earlier pieces of Salvation Army music and he said he was particularly pleased with Just As I Am because he was he was concerned to make it flow. That was his concern within the Salvation Army. I want to do a good job for the Salvation Army. That's That, that, that was exact words to me uh, and by that I think he meant he wanted to get away from the sort of episodic nature of a lot of it, especially when he was brought up in the 30s, you know that it was Compose 16 bars, insert a hymn tune, compose 16 more bars, insert a hymn tune. And sometimes those didn't relate terribly well. Um, but in Just As I Am, he wanted to create an organic whole. And I think in that, he was in, his biggest influence was George Marshall. So you talked about the tune uh, written by William Bradbury in 1849 with the words by Charlotte Elliott. Why do you think that Heaton chose this particular hymn tune? Well, first of all, I think it's because he'd heard it being sung and played uh, and wanted to write something based on it. And as I've been working through his music, I, I've, come, I've noticed that he likes a tune which is either very simple, with simple and very easily uh, audible intervals or char characteristics or something which he then can use like a quarry for ideas. This has become a very popular piece, and, and you ask people, which piece of Wilfred Heaton's do you really like? Do, do you admire the most? Pe most brass banders and people who know his music will say praise, and they'll say just as I am. What a lovely piece. Now, perhaps they can't tell you why it's lovely and why it feels so right, but it feels right because he's considered, as I said earlier, he's considered all his themes and his ideas, which unfold and develop like a like an organ like an organism as it were like, a, like uh, there's a journey there but it's all derived from the characters from the intervals within the tune itself um it extends over an octave from g 
to G. And towards the end, it, the compass is just a sixth from the B to the G. And whether it's conscious or not, he's used that right at the start, that tortuous solo cornet line, which I know uh, he did that, did that a few times in his pieces. It yearns, it's yearning because he's just giving a bit of tension between the, the, between the um, interval, just to uh, move the ear always forward. But it's derived in its essence from elements within the tune itself. There's a sort of hesitancy at the start, isn't there? That's another, it's an interpretive thing, I think. It's a favourite word that Wilfred uses, which is called slent, slentando, which means just slow down a touch, just point it. Then we've gone nowhere. We're still in the first bar. So this is someone who's hesitant, who's prayerful, but doesn't quite, is unsure about, the, about how to progress. And you can hit the trombones do exactly the same thing. We're, st we're in, actually in E minor and the trombones just interrupt it. They go on to C, which is in conventional harmonic language, the interrupted cadence. But we've only got to, to the bar two. The da dum pom pom. Now what do we do? We move. And the melody, it's like a song without words. We can't sing it because the intervals are, are, are rather um, extreme in places. That, that octave that comes regularly through it is important because it's always moving our ear on. And the dotted note, dee, da, da, appears all the way through. The, the interval of the octave, as I say, appears all the way through, either as an open harmonic um, fill, which we hear it in the trombones, not, not too... Uh, far from the start and gradually then it appears in more uh, assertive terms until that big climax when the octaves really sound um, but gradually he brings in the tune we're hesitant at the start there's lots of wefts of counterpoint that little theme that we hear in the corn it threads its way through the band um, and then in bar eight or nine there where the where the euphoniums take over Wilfred's melody trombones actually take on the first three notes of just as I am hidden away and taken over by the baritones and then the harmony opens out and we move from a rather nervous uncertain E minor and then the tune comes open it opens out into uh, G major with the second inversion at the bottom so we're, we're, we're expecting more but the tune comes very simply on two trombones uh, it's a prayer simply done with humility, taken over by the cornets, uh, and then filled in by an octave in the baritones. It's, a, it's simple, but it's just to the point. And you're absolutely right about that opening solo cornet part. Of all the bands and all the times I've played, this never seems to get any easier. Proper edge of the seat moment. And you mentioned the score as well. As usual with these analyses, our listeners are able to download the score from the Salvation Army Music Index if you'd find it useful to pick through and look through the score as you listen to this. You can find it just by Googling it from the Salvation Army Music Index. So we got to letter A there, um, mm. the first iteration of the tune, just as our art. Uh, could you talk us away through the way Heaton treats this tune? I don't know whether Wilfred was thinking pictorially here, but... There is a picture, isn't there, of, of just very simple, just people sitting or kneeling and praying or simply singing the hymn. Um, 
and I think that stands out as a contrast. Very simple harmony, just actually it's presented in thirds all the way through with, um, with, with straightforward harmony notes underneath, supporting notes in the, in the basses, which is a stark contrast to the um, contrapuntal and melodic, rather um, uh, emotional, as it were, language in, in, the rest of the, in the rest of the work. So that takes us through to letter B. Now, letter B to C is only eight bars, yet it proves to be a significant section in the transition of the piece. Um, why do you think that this section B to C here helps the music flow through as we approach letter C and beyond? It's all part of that expressive journey, um, I think. Structurally, the piece is a bit like a rondo. Um, the music at the start and then the hymn are the basis of the piece. And then, gra then he, he gradually takes those two and develops them as he goes. Those two episodes, as it were, those two sections become the basis of what happens next. And that section B to C and then C to D, they're, they're what I would call developmental in that the music we've heard right at the start becomes more urgent, more expressive. The intervals are wider. Um, if you think, of that little dotted phrase, D, da, da, da. And then you look at B, it goes. And moves our, moves our ear and our, our thoughts further. The harmony is more directed. It's, it doesn't interrupt itself because the, the, the little uh, dotted motif actually is then heard in the middle of the band, the euphoniums soaring away there with the horns. And then again, when we get to letter C, that, that uh, rising figure becomes an octave in the cornets. We hear it first. And it's almost as if we've gone back to the beginning because the music is very similar to the start, uh, but not quite similar, but not the same because it's always moving us on. We've, we've gone to a remoter key. Um, it's uh, a sharper key. So it, it's sort of ratcheting up the tension, if you like. And the, the melody has been, the, that little motive has been divided up. The cornet's taking a line, the underneath instruments then um, taking the, count, the contrapuntal. Answered by the cornets. And then it empties itself out. And then we've got to rather a bleak place because the trombones just take that octave that we heard right at the start, and that's all we hear. And it's as if we've, that's more or less the halfway point of the piece. And in a conventional meditation, you'd probably expect the second version of the verse to appear then. Um, and I'm just looking at the words here, actually. Uh, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, Oh, Lamb of God, I come. I think we can, you know, you can hear some of that tension, some of that in the fragments that we that, that um, he's he's delivering for us. But the letter D, where we'd expect the tune to to come again, we have the same length of bars, but the tune is fragmented. We only hear a little bit of it. We only we hear it on the horn, da da dee da da, 
And that's answered by what the Cornets played at the start. And the, his own little team. Da dee da 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 dee da da. We're in the minor key too. Da da dee. And it's answered again, uh, said again. And it's uh, articulated again, it's repeated. More urgently this time with the answering phrase further higher in the Cornets. So our, our, the, the tension is rising all the time. Um, and if you look at the words, it's, rather than deliver a verse, he's, as it were, condensing the expression of these words. Um, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Then the verse four, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt pardon, cleanse, and relieve. And I think we're hearing some of that expression within the music here. Um, and I was talking about that octave uh, just before this fragmentary hymn appears. We then hear it right at the very top of the band in the soprano cornet and flugelhorn. And I think that's a signal for us because then at letter E, if you're following the score, the basses come in with another theme. There's an octave range and there's just as I am in the three rising notes. But it's calmer, it's slower, and it's sort of like a re recapitulation of the opening. But there's a more, there's, there's a greater assurance in, I think, in the expression. There's a firmer tread in the bass. And if you look at verse four, because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. So there's a, a, a greater certainty now in this next bridge, bridge passage, this sort of, sort of reprise, develop, developing all the time, and a confidence. And that's how he builds the texture uh, towards that extraordinary climax, which seems in, at first, um, if someone hears the piece for the first time, maybe rather too big for what we've heard. But of course, there's a confidence there. Um, and, and you think of verse five, just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. And for me, when I see letter F and I see the, 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 the way that climax works, which that octave has now gone right to the top of the band on the soprano cornet and solo cornets, and ba-bam, ba-bam, the dotted, the dotted rhythms we heard at the start, they're not nervous, equivocal, they're now absolutely assertive. <laughs> Musically, it's just his way of creating a climax and creating a, a cadence preparation. But actually expressively, it's, I think it's rather significant because within that middle section of the piece, he's gone through, as it were, he's condensed the expression uh, and, and, as a personal testimony in a way, those four verses. Uh, uh, quite remarkable. It's, it's a, and that, I think, is part of the reason why everyone thinks it's such a fine work. There's these unconscious things happening in the music that, that, that follow, but yet yeah, they follow the essence of what Charlotte Elliott's text is um, presenting us with. And that's quite neat, unique, especially in Salvation Army brass band music. I suggest often when we're associating hymns to words, there's a lot of word painting, but actually to condense it and to get the, the feeling and the meaning of those words into the music rather than the association with the hymn uh, is certainly a very uh, boundary pushing idea there. Yeah, I think that's right. It's 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 not just word painting, but it's creating the expression of and, and delivering the expression of what he's trying to say from the language of the music, from the most, from the way he's developing his themes, from the counterpoint, from the di directions in which the harmony is going. 
Um, so it's actually inbuilt. It's not laid over the top like a like, like a gloss paint, which you can think of a lot of word painting as being. So that takes us uh, through to Letter G, as you've mentioned, and we have this huge climactic, a real emotional treatment of the tune. How does this differ to the very personal, intimate uh, version that we hear at the beginning of the music? Well, he does the same things. The co there's a lot of thirds going on. There's a lot, there's not, there are octaves in the trombones, which I think is very important. Isn't it interesting? It's the little things. That octave in the trombone had appeared at the start quite, um, as it were, isolated. And then we've heard it gradually through, and it's only an octave. But actually, it seems to gather in importance and intensity. And here we hear it um, bringing us into G. D, da, da, T. And then we're into the, um, the hymn tune. It's a very straightforward harmonization. Um, and he does um, double up the, 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 the octaves at times. Um, soprano goes very high. But it, it's just a... a, a beautifully scored full hymn tune scoring and if you look at the words you can see why he's done it like this there's an assurance there's a confidence here isn't there just as I am of that free love the breadth length depth and height to prove here for a season then above O Lamb of God I come <laughs> Is very important actually. You know, it appears at the end of every verse of the of um, Charles Eliot's uh, poem, but Wilfrid doesn't include it in his piece at all. We don't hear oh da da deep. Uh, his tune doesn't actually end. He doesn't end either time with the repeat I come. And in a sense, that is the the, the key that m keeps moving us on because we don't hear that last phrase until the very end of the piece, the last gesture. And I, I have this feeling that coda, which is again, looking at the opening, it's looking through a refracted glass, if you like, we're no longer hesitant and unsure and nervous in our prayer, in our pleading. There's a calmness and assurance in it. Uh, instead, of the, instead of the melody going up, it now goes down. We're confident in the arms of Jesus, if you like. Um, and then the trombones take, which is a sort of um, variant of just as I am, but it's backwards. Da, dee, da, 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 da. And then he brings that sixth in that we've heard at the very start. Da, da, dee, da, da, da. He puts it in the trombone part here, condensing that whole phrase. Da, 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 dee, da, da, da. But all those little chromatic bits, da, 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 da. those unsure, those uncertain bits, they disappeared. And it's very plain, it's very straightforward. 
da da di da 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 like open arms da di and then the cornets this is this, it's just as i am ba 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 but there's just a simple triad in in written cornets g major the band comes in and we're left with just the simplicity of those three notes and that is i come we're open and it Wilfrid was very concerned in a lot of his music. A lot of the subject matter of his Salvation Army music is concerns the journey through life and the assurance of, to quote something he used in one of his other pieces, a heavenly home, the journey to heaven. He was absolutely convinced the assurance, the afterlife. It was the thing that, that motivated him both musically and particularly spiritually through his life. So that idea of I come, that's the assurance of eternal home. And I think that's what is in the essence of Charlotte Elliott's hymn. Uh, oh, uh, here for a season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. And I think that's where what we hear with just those three angelic cornets at the end, left exposed and dying away. And it is an absolutely magical moment. Pure simplicity, I think. Mm. Absolutely. It encompasses the, the whole essence of the piece and the whole essence of faith, really. Yeah. Um, that we just come as we are. We don't need to make it any fanciful. We don't need to make it complicated. We come as we are and we accept it. Uh, and actually, it's very interesting. I think this, of all Wilfred's pieces, he was very proud of this. He said, I'm rather, he would, he would never say he was proud. He was a very, a very diffident man. He said he was very pleased with this. Oh, I was pleased with this, Paul. And what he meant was he was very proud of the way it did it. But it was a very personal piece to him, I think. And my interpretation, and it's only my view, I think this is his testimony. Now, if you're observant or have got a good memory, you'll remember at the very beginning in my ramble before the podcast, I talked about there being a new segment. The new segment is a stem and off branch of Band Mastermind, and we're going to call it very originally Band Mastermind at Home. This new segment involves you. Yes, you. And gives you a chance to flex your band knowledge. I'm going to read a snippet from some CD program notes. All you have to do is work out which piece of Salvation Army Brass Band music I'm talking about. If you think you know, you can comment on the music editorial Facebook post, tweet us at Fully Scored, or even contact us on Instagram. Yes, we've hit the 21st century hard. The first person to work out which piece I'm talking about and let us know will get a mention in the next episode. If you want extra bonus brownie points and really want to show off, 
Why not let us know the exact CD it comes from and who wrote the program notes for it? Mmm, tasty brownie points. So, here is this week's Band Mastermind at Home conundrum. The title derives from a statement scripturally recorded by the Apostle John. This composer's idiom is easy to identify with the individuality of his crafting and a gently sophisticated chromatic palette refreshing his chosen material. The piece is a selection of well-known gospel songs ending climactically with All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name in Bolero mode. Think you know what piece that might be? Let us know. Now, following Band Mastermind at home, we now welcome Howard back to the podcast to put his band trivia knowledge to the test in Band Mastermind. Now, I'm sure after a year's worth of podcast, you know the rules by now, but just a quick recap in case you don't. Howard will have one minute and 30 seconds, the exact time it takes the ISP to play Jubilee, minus a few repeats, to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as he can. So, Dr. Howard Evans, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I think so, but I'm not a band geek in that way. I might know these. Let's see where we go. Here we go. Your time starts now. Who was the founding father of Salvation Army Music Charles in Fry. Sweden? Oh, in Sweden? Um, I have no idea. Okay, we'll pass. Who was commonly known as the architect of Salvation Army Music? Richard Slater. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Oh, rather... Who was it? I'll tell you at the end. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I'd rather have Jesus by William Himes as written for which former trumpet player of the Chicago Bill Symphony Orchestra? Correct. 2S Petrus, which has been recently featured in the band journals, translates as? Uh, you are Peter. Correct. What was uh, RSA's only core appointment? I have no idea. Okay, we'll come back to it at the end. Who was the Salvation Army's proclaimed March King? Uh, Bram Coles. Correct. Which RSA piece written for Birmingham Citadel Band, recorded on part of the album of the same name, remains unpublished? I don't know, because it's unpublished. Okay. Uh, what tune was fe- featured throughout the middle section of Kevin Norbury's Odyssey? Uh, um, I should know this. I know this. Uh, okay, pass. Go on. Okay. Robert Redhead was born in which city? Manchester. Correct. Isaiah 40 was the National Brass Band test piece in which year? 1996. Correct. Who wrote the Festival March of the Proclaimers? Kevin Norwood. What hymn tune... Correct, sir. What hymn tune starts the Race Devon Allen epic daystar? Uh, already spoken about that. Ask away. Excellent. Dr. Kenneth Downey. Uh, the time is up, but I'll finish the question. Thank you. Dr. Kenneth Downey has a composing studio that overlooks which river? The X. Correct. So that brings your score to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. A fantastic score. So the well, ones how have the others got on? I haven't checked those out. I think you may be in the lead with that score. Yeah, but if you hadn't wasted so much time with some of the questions, I'd have done a bit better. (laughs) Many apologies. Maybe you can play again one day. (laughs) I'll get some even harder questions for you. So the ones you didn't quite get correct there, um, the founding father of Salvation on Music... Klaus Osterby wrote Prince Thorpe variations in... Meditation on Prince Thorpe in the early 
festival series. Yeah, I believe it's number two in yeah. the festival series. I should have known that. You don't get a bonus point now. <laughs> uh, Fred Hawkes was known as the architect yeah, of Salvation Richard Army Slater music. was the founder. Absolutely. Um, RSA's only core appointment was Sheerness on C. Uh, I should have known that. Yep. Um, well, it all counts in the game, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> uh, the RSA piece that was written for Birmingham Sizzle Band and recorded on the album of the same name but remains unpublished was Centerpoint. Right. Um, the when tune- was that? I believe maybe the 60s Oh, you or don't 70s. know this? No, I don't know. Oh, right, okay. But it's not me under the test, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite nice to turn the tables. <laughs> I don't know the piece. I don't know no, the piece. I've been really piece. interested to have a look at the manuscript. It's a very quirky piece. Um, the tune that's featured throughout the middle section of Kevin Norbury's Odyssey is Slain. Slain. I knew that. Why didn't I say it? It's the pressure of that mastermind. It does funny yeah, things to your head. Does. And then all the following questions you've got correct. Thank so you. Well done. Thank and you very a much. Terrific indeed. score there. Indeed. Well, to quote an often overused phrase, all good things must come to an end, and so must this episode of Fully Scored, I'm afraid. If you'd like to discuss or point out anything, or continue the conversation with anything that we talked about or raised in this episode, you can contact us on the Music Editorial Facebook page, you can contact us on Twitter, at Fully Scored, or even you could contact us on Instagram, just search for Fully Scored and uh, we're bound to pop up somewhere. I'd also like to add a few thanks before we close. Thank you, of course, to my two guests today, to Howard Evans for welcoming us into your home, the brilliant brew, and for sharing your words with us. And also thank you to Paul Hindmarsh for all your time that you put into that analysis of Just As I Am. It's great to speak to you both and thank you once again. I'd also like to extend my thanks to the elusive band nerds who have helped put together the Band Mastermind trivia. My thanks also go to Simon Gash, our producer, for editing together this podcast and putting it into a really nice and listenable package and getting rid of all the rubbish bits where I fumble my words and trip over myself. There's probably quite a few of those. And finally, thank you to you, and you, and you, and you, and you, our listeners. Because without you, we'd have no listeners and that would be a little bit sad. Don't forget to let us know if you think you know the answer to Band Mastermind at home. And why not give us a review on iTunes if you're that way inclined. Or feel free to share the podcast with a friend or even an enemy. We're all inclusive here. Well, I think that's all I've got to say apart from stay safe and take care wherever you are. Goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 